you are all still remaining safe and healthy and and joyful and that you're ready to continue uh, in with our study through the book of Philippians. Uh, Today we're going to be doing part nine, believe it or not, and we're going to be focusing on the the second half of chapter three, uh, which will be verses 12 through 21. But before we go any further, let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you We thank you for your provision and for your love. Let your Holy Spirit guide our hearts and minds today as we strive to know more about you. Lord, I pray that you use this time to edify and to encourage your people. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ that thy will be done. Amen. Okay, in the passage uh, that we'll be studying today, the first thing you'll notice is that there's a shift in the language uh, that Paul uses. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, to be precise, uh, he dropped a hint uh, when he used the term run in vain, run in vain. Uh, And now he goes all in with the athletic metaphor. Paul compares the activity of knowing Christ to a race. A race that is run until the final prize is awarded. However, unlike any race that we've run in the past, there isn't going to be a single winner. In the race to know Christ, everyone, everyone who successfully completes the event will be awarded the top prize. Not some second-rate participation trophy, you know, the, the kind that keep people's feelings from being hurt. No, we're talking about a genuine first place, top of shelf prize. That's some really good news right there. And uh, provided that, that we don't give up and that we do actually finish the race. Well, in, in keeping with the athletic uh, theme, I titled today's message with a quote from the great baseball player Yogi Berra. Many of you, I'm sure, are, are, are familiar with, with Yogi. Uh, he was a superb, absolutely superb athlete. Uh, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1972. He was one of only six people to be named the American League MVP three times during his career. And he is regarded as one of the greatest catchers to ever play the game. But athletic achievements aside, uh, he's probably just as well known for his his ability to mangle the English language. Some of his uh, greatest hits, uh, they include, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, It's like deja vu all over again. The future ain't what it used to be. And of course, the one that I'm using as the title for today's message, it ain't over till it's over. Well, with that in mind, let's go on and read today's passage, beginning at verse 12. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of of whom I have often told you and now tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, in verse 12, Paul tells his friends that he hasn't obtained this yet. Well, to discover what he means by this, we need to go back to verse 11, where he says that he is attempting, and I quote, by all means possible to attain the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection into glory with Jesus Christ is the end game for Paul and for all of us who who claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. But, like all of us, Paul had, had, not, re- had not yet reached the, the finish line. He knew that the race was still going on and that he had to keep moving forward if he expected to win. Apparently, there were some believers, uh, not necessarily in Philippi, but most certainly in Corinth, uh, who, who boasted that they had attained spiritual perfection. And, and Paul, he, he had to set them straight. We can read about that in in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this type of thinking brought a lot of grief to Paul uh, for a a couple of reasons. Number one, he wasn't a fan of of boasting and bragging, unless it was about the Lord. And and secondly, he was afraid what would happen to his friends if they were to stop short of the goal. Following Jesus is a lifelong commitment. And there are no consolation prizes. You either win or you lose. Uh, Running half of the race or or three quarters of the race, well, that's, that's just as if you didn't even run the race at all. See, Paul was afraid for his brothers and sisters, and and he strongly encouraged them to remain in the Lord and to press on because it, it wouldn't be over until it was over. In verse 18, pardon me, in verse 13, Paul emphasizes the fact that he doesn't consider his progress in the race something that that he can take credit for. The implication here is pretty clear. Because uh, Christ has made Paul his own, any success that, that Paul has had needs to be credited to the glory of the Lord. He tells his friends that, that the, only contribution, uh, the only contribution from him 
was that he had a, a forward-looking attitude. You know, just last week we talked about how Paul regarded the events and the achievements uh, of his past. You may remember that, that he considered all of that stuff to be no better than rubbish when compared to knowing Jesus. And here, the, the picture is of a runner who's not looking over his shoulder. See, it's a fact that if someone's running a race and they keep looking backwards over their shoulder, disaster is eventually going to strike. They're, they're going to be distracted and, or overtaken, or, or they're going to run into something, or maybe a combination of all three of those. See, when we run toward the goal of knowing Christ, we are running a, a solitary race. And our competition is not with any of our brothers and sisters. Our competition is with ourselves. Our competition is with that, that little voice in our head that, that tells us to, to look back, to look in the past. I, you know, maybe there's, there's a divorce back there. Maybe there is struggles with, with addiction or abuse. Or maybe there's that, that, that little voice that tells us that we're not good enough, that we haven't done enough to, to please the Lord and that we're going to be ashamed when we stand before him. And that's simply not true. When God forgives our sins, he does not hold them against us. Check this out from from Jeremiah 3, where the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's not not enough to just to, to believe that God has forgiven us. It's so important that we know the quality of his forgiveness. If we choose to look over our shoulder, that is to, to dwell on the past mistakes and, and all this other unimportant stuff, instead of remaining focused on the goal, we're setting ourselves up for failure. If we have chosen to accept Christ, then we must trust him to guide us. See, all we need to do is keep our eyes on him and keep moving forward. As Paul says in, in verse 14, We press on towards the goal, which is the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. The upward call. The the image that that Paul is is trying to create here is that of an athlete. An athlete who, upon winning the race, uh, he, he gets to step up into the emperor's box to receive his prize. Well, in this case, the the president of, of the games is none other than the Lord himself. And the prize to be gained was Jesus Christ. Paul is is not so naive, however, as to believe that all of his friends share in this assessment of Christian issues. But he doesn't attempt to to force his attitudes upon them. Instead, in, in typical Paul fashion, he offers some helpful advice. In verse 15, he refers to those who who share his attitude as being mature. Now, this makes perfect sense. However, uh, for some of you reading at home, things may not, things may not be so clear. Depending on the, on the translation that you're using today, you may actually see the word perfect instead of mature. And if that's the case, uh, the natural question to ask uh, is this. How is it that Paul... Uh, can argue against spiritual perfection in in verse 12, 
and then turn around and claim it in verse 15? Well, the answer lies, as it usually does, in the context and the translational choices here. See, according to my big old Greek dictionary, both definitions are acceptable. And newer translations, they tend to go with the definition that provides the most clarity. In this case, opting for the word mature is the choice. So if your Bible uses the word perfect in verse 15, don't be alarmed. Uh, Just mentally substitute the word mature in its place and and keep pressing forward. Well, Paul then turns turns his attention to believers who may not be as mature in their their faith. He, He refrains from condescension or reproach, but instead offers them encouragement. He lets them know that that God will reveal the truth to them if they seek his guidance, just as they have done in the past. Paul emphasizes the need to continue on the path that they're on. And verse 16 makes it clear that despite any further revelation they receive from God, his friends must remain standing firm on what they've already been given. See, the knowledge of God is a a cumulative process. And and it builds upon itself without having to substitute. In other words, it's not necessary to remove one component to replace it with another. Paul is saying, in effect, what you have believed and, and are believing about God, hang on to that, please, hang on to that. Uh, but just add this to it. It's kind of like a, a software update or a software patch that, uh, that fixes issues associated with notions of premature spiritual perfection. Okay, that was a joke just for my computer people who are out there, and I hope you get that one. You see, although Paul was a good teacher and a, an amazing preacher, he knew that there was no substitute for a living example. Somebody that you could see in person and, and watch how they lived their life. Someone who, whose conduct exemplified a life in Christ and, and would be a worthy example to follow. You see, in verse 17, Paul invites his friends to imitate him. Now that sounds really risky <laughs> and, and maybe even arrogant, but we have to understand something here. See, Paul was doing everything in his power to imitate Christ. He knew full well that that by asking people to imitate him, he was taking on a huge responsibility. He knew that. But he also knew that if he were following Jesus, then he and everyone who was doing what he was doing would be on the same righteous path. Not everyone, though, who, who claimed to preach Christ was worthy of imitation. But Paul was confident that he, as well as a few others, would serve as good examples for his people to follow. You know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there were some unworthy examples wandering about. And in in verse 18 and 19, Paul warns his friends against these morally harmful individuals and their, their wicked beliefs. Although he had warned people against Judaizers, uh, that was all the way back in verse 2, if you remember, the group that he addresses here is generally, generally understood to be of a different sort. 
From his description, it's fairly safe to assume that he is describing a group known as the Libertines. The Libertines. By reading some of his other writings, uh, particularly in uh, 1 Corinthians, it's evident that Paul, at various times in his career, uh, he had to battle two very distinct groups apart from the Judaizers. Two very distinct groups who, who had placed themselves at kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. On one hand, there were the ascetics who preached the gospel of self-denial, right? A Spartan type of existence, going so far as to prohibit all pleasure, all sensual pleasure, and encouraging their followers to, to withdraw from society and go off and, and live in caves like hermits. On the other hand, though, there were the libertines whose slogan was, all things are permissible. Well, this group deliberately indulged in sin. Deliberately. They, they conducted themselves in, in morally reprehensible ways, uh, believing that the grace of God would be extended to them whenever they needed it. They were totally unaware of, of the premise that when Christ died to free people from sin and, and to reconcile them to God, that was supposed to be a one-and-done deal. Uh, you were not supposed to keep on sinning so that grace may abound, to, to quote the apostle. By continuing to sin and falsely believing that God would, would just extend as much grace as they needed, uh, it, it repudiates the, the will of God, and it makes a mockery of the cross of Christ. Well, Paul had apparently warned people before, uh, whether in person or in writing, we're not exactly sure, but he feels strongly. He feels strongly about the danger that he repeats his warning, and he does so in the very strongest of terms. See, these jokers are headed for trouble. That's exactly what he tells me, because they are headed for trouble. The path that they are on leads to destruction. And the unspoken implication here is that anyone who chooses to follow them is going to end up in the same place. Paul goes on to say that the God of the Libertines is their belly. Well, this, uh, again, presents another interesting translational choice uh, for us to take a look at. Uh, in Romans 16, uh, Paul warns the, the Roman Christians against undesirable characters who are, quote, not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, end quote. The word translated as appetites in the passage from Romans is the exact same word that's translated as belly in our passage. And because the, the sins of the libertines were, were not limited to merely gluttony, I think it's a, a much better choice uh, to use the word appetites here in, instead of belly. Because the word appetites encompasses the entire catalog of depravity uh, that the libertines were engaging in. The libertines reveled in their activities, and they seem proud of what they mistakenly believed to be freedom. Well, Paul is under no such illusions, however, and he calls them out on it. 
Their glory is in their shame. It is not only a good example of an oxymoron, but it further reinforces that previous clause. You see, if their appetites were indeed their God, then they could hope for no other reward, no other glory than to be shamed. That's the prize that's awarded to anyone who insists on keeping their mind on earthly things. You see, the world is absolutely incapable of giving us anything of eternal value. Only the eternal can give the eternal. But enough with the negative stuff, Paul says. Even though the world is really wacky and and some folks are even wackier than normal, you, you don't really live here. You are just passing through. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you know while you're here on earth, it's imperative that you conduct yourselves accordingly. This is not your home. See, way back in part four of this series, we talked about the contrast between a heavenly citizenship and an earthly citizenship, specifically uh, Roman citizenship, and how difficult... Uh, how difficult it can be to to live in a way that doesn't mimic the society around you. I mean, it's hard not to give in and join the crowd. I mean, no one wants to be a weirdo, at least not all of the time. And avoiding ridicule is something that is just wired into us as humans. Paul knows this. And to that end, he encourages his friends by reminding them why they aren't supposed to be acting like everybody else. They have a savior, Jesus Christ, who is going to be doing some really amazing things with them. Well, for one, he's going to give them new bodies. Now, I'm not even going to pretend uh, to know what that will look like, but, but be assured that they're going to be of the same heavenly order as Jesus' own resurrection body. See, Christ is able to do this, Paul tells them, because he shares power with God. Christ is co-equal with God. And, and he has a power that is so great that everything is brought under his control. See, Paul didn't know and, and didn't even pretend to know uh, when this would take place, but he knew absolutely 100% that it would eventually come to pass. That certainty is one that we accept in faith, even though the, the timing is beyond our ability to calculate. As Dr. F.F. F. Bruce would say, and I quote, each successive generation of the church has the privilege of living as if it were the generation that will greet the returning Christ. Now, how's, how's that for something to think about? The privilege of greeting the returning Christ. Man, that would be so cool. But I know in my heart that the church still has a lot to do. We still have a lot to do, folks. Did you know that today there are still over 7,400 unreached people groups in the world? 41% of the world's population, equating to 3.23 billion people. Now, I want you to frame those statistics in the words of our Lord from Matthew 24, where he says, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And now let's do the same thing with the words of the Apostle John from Revelation 9, where he says, And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that one could count from from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And now I'm going to ask you this question. How will they believe and be saved if they do not hear the gospel? Now I'm going to tell you, it's this fact and this fact alone that leads me to believe anyway that that we're nowhere near uh, the end of the world. It's not as close as as we sometimes think it is. You know, the state of the world, uh, as I've shared with you before, the state of our world has on on several occasions prompted me to just to just wish that the Lord would come back and that we didn't have to see any more this. Uh, this ridiculous behavior that's going on in, in our world. But the reality is, is, is that I keep returning to, to that fact, that there are so many people who haven't heard the word of the Lord yet. Because I know, I know this about God. I know that he is so merciful. He is so merciful and so loving that he was willing to sacrifice the life of his own son so that every man, woman, and child in the world would have the chance at salvation. Whosoever believes in him will be saved and will have eternal life. But belief is from faith. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Over three billion people haven't even heard the word of God. There is still so much to do, people. Our race is far from over, and we have got to keep on running. We keep on running, and we take Paul's words to heart. Everything that he told his friends back then is just as relevant to us today. For starters, we know that no matter where we're at, how far along or how not far along we are on our spiritual journey, we are there because of the grace of Jesus Christ. When we accepted him as as our Lord and Savior, he made us his own. We don't have to fear the, the temptations of this world because he's overcome the world. Amen? See, when, when difficult situations arise, he will... He will provide us with everything that we need to remain firmly in his grasp. And behind every one of those masks is the face of the enemy. The enemy who absolutely delights in in diverting our attentions from the cross of Christ. An enemy who revels every time one of us stumbles. Don't look back. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you pray. You pray. Pray that those thoughts are held captive in his name. And you pray that his Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit fills you with with strength and peace. You know, there is nothing that the enemy can do to us when we're filled with Jesus. There is not any room 
There is, there's no room for his nonsense in our heart when it's filled with Jesus. And we also pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You know, our, our journey is a journey of conforming. Conforming to the likeness of Christ, and, and we need help with that process. You know, all of us have uh, spiritual blinders that, that keep us from objectively assessing our own spiritual condition. That's just a fact. Uh, the Holy Spirit will guide us in, in identifying those areas, uh, those, those areas of our lives that, that need a little work, or maybe that needs a lot of work. He, he can lead us uh, to spiritual mentors, brothers and sisters that, that can help us uh, in our walk. He can, he can lead us to people who aren't afraid to, to tell us the truth in love. So they can give us uh, opinions of, of how we're doing and, and provided, uh, of course, that, that we're openly uh, engaging in, in honest, heart-to-heart conversations. Now, I'm sure that, that we all know people, at least one or two, who are worthy of imitation. The importance of, of having a real-life spiritual model, it's, it's hard to, to understate that. It's something that not only Paul encouraged among his friends, but, but it's something that, that can be a great value to us as well. I personally ha- have a few examples th- that I look to for inspiration and, and guidance. You know, brothers and sisters who are, are walking in the Lord in a way that, that makes me want to be like them. There are some folks that, that, that I admire for their willingness to pray wherever and, and whenever they feel moved to. Others inspired me to be more diligent and, and purposeful in my study of God's word. But whatever benefits I gain, that they all serve a common purpose, to further me along the path, to become more like Jesus. And the effects... They aren't limited to my own journey. And let me uh, elaborate on that for just a moment. See, we all have the responsibility of being ambassadors of the gospel. We, we've talked about that before. And, and this is something uh, that, that bears repeating, however. Any one of us has the potential to be a, a first contact. A first contact from someone who is brand new to the faith, or who has never heard about Jesus. To that end, it's our duty to provide the most Christ-like example that we can. You know, and recognizing that, that we ourselves at some point may be the object of imitation, that should uh, compel us, right, to, to seek the highest and the best among those that we have chosen to imitate. I mean, Paul had no problem telling his friends to imitate him because he was imitating Jesus. Well, in the same way, by carefully selecting our earthly role models, we can have confidence in in the spiritual persona that we are presenting to the world. See, discernment is of paramount importance because, unfortunately, just as it was back in Paul's time, there are still folks out there that are not preaching a true or a faithful gospel. You know, I'm not going to go off on a, a rabbit trail right now and, and start listing 
some of the heresies that are that are present in in today's church. But for the sake of illustration, I, I am going to to use one as an example. The prosperity gospel. If you haven't heard of this before, uh, here's a brief summary of what they want us to believe. The, the prosperity gospel teaches that when anyone decides to follow Jesus, their life gets better. Well, so far, so good, right? I, I mean, that's, the, that's part of the deal. I mean, you, you come to Jesus and your life will get better. But unfortunately, <laughs> they, they put a little twist on it. You see, they, they tell people that when you come to know Jesus, that you will be blessed financially, materially, and you'll be blessed with good health. Well, the problem with that is that uh, we end up with a few people, uh, a few very wealthy people, who got that way through donations to their church. They stand in front of this huge mansion or in front of a fancy sports car, and they tell people that they can have the exact same thing by donating to the church. Well, that is wrong. There was a whole lot wrong with that. In fact, if you remember, Jesus himself, he preached the exact opposite of a prosperity gospel. Listen to his own words from Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the Lord himself telling us that that following him was not a a get-rich-quick proposition, but rather it was a first step on a journey that could well be the hardest thing that you've ever done. I mean, just think of the believers in places where Christianity is outlawed, and the places where just having a Bible in your home could could result in a death sentence. Well, how is it possible then to to rectify that reality with a so-called prosperity gospel? Well, it's not possible, and that's the point. Well, that's just one example of a group that, although they may preach heavenly things, their minds are quite obviously fixed on earthly things. We have to be on guard, and we have to be wise. Our best defense against those who would come against us with an imperfect gospel is living every moment in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, as Paul said, citizens of heaven. And we all, we all await the day when we live in glory with our Savior. We'll have brand new resurrection bodies. And as I mentioned earlier, I have no idea what that's going to look like. But I do know that it's going to be awesome. And the tears and and the sorrows and the regrets of this life, they're going to be gone. And we're going to join with our brothers and sisters from all corners of the the world. and, And we're going to sing, holy, 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 praise be to the Lamb. And it's going to be glorious. But until that day arrives, here we are. And we still have a lot of work to do. To make the most of, of every moment that, that we're granted in this lifetime, well, that's one of the most God-honoring things that you can do. So we keep our eyes on the prize, and we keep pressing on. 
We, we continue to take every opportunity to, to share the good news of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we do everything that we can to, to help his people. We continue to support our, our local church and our missionaries around the world. We continue to study his word and, and draw closer to his heart. Well, why do we do these things? Because it ain't over until it's over. Let's pray. Father God, you are mighty and you are holy. And we thank you for all that we have been given. And we praise your holy name. Lord, we ask that you continue to uphold us and to strengthen us as we work to expand your kingdom on earth. Let our hearts be filled with a spirit of love for all and a desire to bring others into your grace. Protect us from the distractions of the enemy. Protect us from the diversions he uses to to move our eyes from the cross. Let your Holy Spirit search us, O God, and reveal anything that is keeping us from getting close to your heart and to your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as always, I pray that the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and that he be gracious unto each and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face and makes it shine upon you and grants you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Try to stay safe, healthy, and joyful. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see y'all in a, in a week or so. Bye. Hello, everyone, family. Um, I'm glad you're here today. I know you're out there. Right now, I'm looking at empty chairs. Someday, we're going to be looking at chairs full of people. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, where have you seen crosses lately? Just last week, I saw one above the hills above Redwood City. And also on the way out, going, leaving town next to Livermore off of 580, there's one off the left side of the road. And at nighttime, it's all lit up with LED solar lights. And that was kind of cool. When I was in college, we went backpacking up in Yosemite. And we took some wood and materials and bolts and we actually assembled a cross and attached it to the register on top of Half Dome. It was kind of cool. We got some really neat pictures from there. But the cross is more than just an adventure, more than pictures, more than things we wear around our neck or put on the bumper sticker of our car. The real story is this. The cross is a very, very ugly tool invented and used by the Romans to crucify criminals and they crucified our Lord as well. Yet we revere it as the most meaningful bridge that God has provided for us so that we can come to know him. Now this is how Paul felt in 1 Corinthians 2.2, said this, I resolved to know nothing but while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. There are two songs that come to mind about the cross in my thinking right now. And they express it far better than I can put words together. Yeah, you know these songs really well, but they do bring meaningful meaningness to me and also I'm sure it means a lot to you too. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. 
and I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And nothing took his life. With love he gave it. He was crucified on a tree that he created. With great love for man, God stayed with his plan. He grew the tree so that we might grow free. Though we will never fathom the deep love that the Father has for us, we can live for him by sharing that deep love with others. The bread represents the body of Christ. It represents him being on earth. Jesus did say that he was the bread of life. This reminds us of his coming in bodily form, experiencing all the events of life has to offer, pains, trials, as well the joys in our earthly life as well. He knows what we went, we go through because he went through himself. Let's take this representation of Christ's body together. <clears throat> the juice, right now it's just, just um, grape juice, but however, in what form it is, this represents the blood of Christ as we know. Levitic, Leviticus 17 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God saying this, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. To the nations of Israel, it was a sacrifice that they offered with animals. To us, it was God's one and only sacrifice. That's in Jesus Christ. This represents the saving blood that was freely given to us. Let us take this together. Let's just close with a real short prayer. Lord, thank you so much for considering us worthy of being the object of your love. It's a far vast, deeper love than we can ever even imagine. And thank you for your son's sacrifice. For Lord, the cross is indeed beautiful to us, for it brought us to you. You enabled a way for us to come back to you. We're grateful for this time of communion. We're grateful for the, for the, the presence that you have in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. To the fragrance of 